In May 1912, just weeks after she'd survived the sinking of the Titanic, a woman from Philadelphia named Marion Thayer received a letter, and I'll read part of it. Quote, ever since leaving America, you have been in my thoughts, and I have talked to you so much. How I wish you had been here, as I am sure we could have helped one another to bear our grief and loss. For you, poor dear, my heart bleeds, and I cannot convey to you in words all that I feel. I ask myself often why it is you seem so much to me. Can you answer? But this letter wasn't from her husband, the father of her four children. He had died on the ship. It wasn't from a sister or even someone who she'd counted as a close, intimate friend for a significant part of her life. It was from Bruce Ismay, managing director of the White Star Line. The man who had been sliced open, flayed alive by the press over the past few weeks because he'd left the sinking ship in a lifeboat when 1,500 of his passengers remained on board, including hundreds of women and children. The man whose cold, dead answers in the Senate inquiry had led so many to believe that this, this, this was the man. This was the man who had murdered the ship of dreams, who had begged her captain to speed up inside a field of ice, who had ignored warning after warning, who had turned away from her his own creation as she plunged into the ocean's depths. Marion would go on to receive so many letters from him, so many that eventually the new widow had to write to Ismay's wife in order to send a message that she and Bruce were friends, only friends. These two versions of a man seem so at odds. One, this mustachioed enigma towing this hard corporate line, and the other, a lovesick puppy pouring his heart out repetitively to someone he really, truly, barely knew. So which one was he? I'm L.A. Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is episode two, The Fall of J. Bruce Ismay. guys jumping in here at the beginning as an add-on you might be able to hear the sounds of my kids screaming in the background I apologize I realized in the editing process of this episode a couple of moments that introduced people that that you should know their names those got lost in the editing process so I just want to jump in and tell you about two Williams that you'll hear mentioned one is William Peary, and he was the chairman of Harland and Wolf during the time that the Titanic was built and for a long time, and he's very important. And I introduce him without enough context. So you need to know him, William Peary. And another William, William Carter, who I mention is on a lifeboat with Bruce Ismay. And I tell a story about him, but I don't mention his first name. So that's what you need to know those two Williams. Keep it in mind. And thank you so much. All right, here we go.
This one is a doozy. And I promise I did edit and polish it down as much as I possibly could, but there are just some things that I couldn't leave out, had to be said. So it is definitely a deep dive. And before I start, I want to mention that even after weeks of research and pouring over you know, papers, transcripts of hearings, going through countless books, some of them very old, it was clear to me that one recent work really stood out. And that is How to Survive the Titanic, or The Sinking of J. Bruce Ismay, I love that title, uh, written by Frances Wilson, and she outlines the life of Ismay so well. I highly recommend the book. I want to give credit where credit is due, and it was a huge source for me for this. So Bruce Ismay's story, Titanic story, it all starts with his father. It has to. Thomas Henry Ismay was born in 1837 in a small town called Maryport on the River Ellen in a tiny cottage, the son of a shipbuilder. The family even lived in a house in the shipyard at one point. At 16, he apprenticed with the Liverpool shipping firm of Emery Tomlinson, where he befriended William Emery. At 18, he went out to sea. And when he returned, he was absolutely on fire, determined to make his living from these ships. At age 23, he became director of his own line of steamships that ran to South America. He married Margaret Bruce, the daughter of a local ship owner. And at age 30, and for only $1,000, $1,000, he bought the house flag of a then bankrupt White Star Line of Australian clippers. He knew if he was going to make money, he needed to cash in on this flow of immigrants going to the United States. So Emery and Ismay joined up to form a company that would run steamships across the North Atlantic, ships built with Belfast's Harlands and Wolf, with only the best materials and no expenses spared. This was their deal. And thus the Oceanic Steam Navigation Company better known as White Star Line, was born. Under sail, it had taken around 40 days to make it to America. Steamships by the mid-1800s could reduce that down to a fortnight, uh, which is two weeks. I even had to look that up to remind myself. But passengers weren't comfortable on these journeys. But White Star Line's first ship was the Oceanic, And she was one of the big ships to change that. Uh, She had room for 2,000, took seven days to get to New York. That was a very small amount at the time. And she was sleek. She was elegant. And Harland and Wolf had experimented with this new uh, strategy of putting the first class cabins amidships where there was the least motion that could be felt from the ship. And so these rooms were quieter, they were bigger, they had larger portholes, they mimicked hotels. And keep in mind, the average home still didn't have adequate lighting or sanitation, but the the ships did, these did. For the wealthy, the sea basically became a shindig. (laughs) And Thomas Ismay became famous at this point for never offending a rival, for ruling his company with this firm, steady hand, for creating jobs, for becoming 
part of Liverpool, the very fabric of his trade. And raised in his father's long shadow was Joseph Bruce Ismay, born December 1862, sandwiched in between two children who had tragically died very young, and then six others who came in sets. I mean, for real, (laughs) two sets were literally twins. He was the odd seventh, even in his own home. Bruce grew up near the sea, though, near ships, and he adored them. But at 11, was sent to a prep school in Elstree on the outskirts of London. He apparently despised it, was unpopular, lonely, hated being away from the ocean, this only place he knew. And he then went to school, a school called Harrow at 15, which had this rigorous curriculum, had sort of emphasis on chivalry and valor. There he was subjected to pranks, uh, like having his bed folded up while he was still in it. Even though he mingled with gentlemen there, and that was sort of the whole point of a school like that, there was this sense of, there was a stigma of the Ismays being from a trades background that uh, he never could really shake, the family could never really shake, and he remained a loner. It might have even been threatening to some, kind of in his silence and his intelligence. That's what some historians have uh, sort of offered. He left Harrow at the 18-month mark, and so he wasn't there long. He finished his education at a tutoring establishment at a French resort, no joke, where he played tennis, I think got very tan, (laughs) impressed his tutor, and at that point went not to Oxford like his brother James, but instead back to Liverpool to apprentice for his father. And there's this very iconic story related to the Ismays that happened right as he began working for his father. He apparently came in the first day, threw his hat and his coat on the desk as he was accustomed to do because he'd spent a lot of time there at the offices, but received a word at the end of the day from Thomas Ismay that the new office boy should not so casually throw his coat and hat on the desk. Um, And some sources claim that Bruce never wore an overcoat again. We'll talk about that. That's up for debate. And there's another story involving a horse. Apparently, Bruce came home early one day to the family estate, took his father's favorite horse out just for a jolly ride. Horse, you know, trips, breaks its leg, has to be put down. And apparently, Bruce could never live that down. I mean, Thomas Ismay was a perfectionist. Apparently, he used to the driveway up to the house had to be immaculate. So when he left for work, this is Thomas, Ismay, Bruce's dad, he would, if he saw any leaves in the driveway, he would take a stone, put it on the leaf. And so when he got home at the end of the day, if the leaf was still there under the stone, then he knew that no one had cleared the driveway. So that is how closely he was monitoring everybody around him, his staff. And he was used to people just kind of doing what he told them to do. And Bruce wasn't like that which is probably why he didn't seem to care for his son's personality very much. Bruce liked to make decisions. He was a clear-thinking mind. And he was the only son who was interested in the trade. James, who was younger, and by all accounts was Thomas's favorite son, he ended up farming and he loved it. And Bauer, another son, would end up 
squandering the family money on, or some of the family money on racehorses. So there's that. But I want to be clear, life was anything but hard for Bruce. You can read Margaret Ismay's journals from this time. That's his mom. There's tons of them. She was effusive in her journals. And she describes Bruce joining them for these excursions on their luxurious ships, lunching with the most powerful people in Europe. Bruce was tall. He was handsome. He was six foot four, lean, athletic, always immaculately turned out. So I don't know, was this perhaps the case of a father being a a bit jealous of his son? Thomas sent a 22-year-old Bruce, he's 22 at this point, to New Zealand aboard their newest ship, the Doric, and then after that to New York to be manager of the White Star Line Agency. So he was grooming him, but he was also keeping him decidedly very far away uh, most of the time. Three weeks after Bruce assumed that position in New York, two of their ships, the Britannic and the Celtic, collided. Tragedy would seem from this point on to unfortunately follow Bruce around. But in New York, as a young person, he bloomed or went a bit wild, whichever way you choose to look at it. Uh, He was a man completely about town good-looking, in-demand, very fashionable. Uh, One employee said his clothes were, quote, perfect and his shoes a dream. His parents caught wind of these goings-on, and they were concerned for a while. But before long, he he actually settled down when he met Florence Scheffelin. And I hope I'm pronouncing that name right. I'm terrible at pronunciations, which will be a theme in this episode, so bear with me. And she was the daughter of just a New York dynasty family. He promised her father he wouldn't move her to the UK. And they had a daughter, Margaret, born in 1889. By the next year, in 1890, Thomas wanted to retire, but he wanted to stay on board as chairman and make Bruce a partner along with James. So not to be outdone by a younger brother, Bruce eventually convinced Florence's dad to relent on this sort of, you know, contract of honor about keeping her in New York. So they go to England. There's a there's a really, really tragic occurrence at this point in their lives. They had had a second child, a little boy named Henry, and he was still a baby. And on the sea voyage over, he was ill. Florence was also ill and apparently in her cabin a lot, unable to take care of the baby properly. So the baby was also put in the charge of a, you know, a nanny wet nurse. I guess this person was really inexperienced and didn't know how to, you know, care for the baby and also being on the ocean probably didn't help anybody's condition. But by the time they made it to England, not even a doctor knew how to save this poor baby. And so unfortunately, he did pass away. And that was the opening of their time you know, moving back to England, um, it would really inform Florence's relationship with England, with Bruce's family. The shadow of that tragedy was very long. They didn't even stay, when they got there, uh, they didn't even stay at Dalpool, which was the, you know, palatial home of Thomas Ismay. I should have mentioned that earlier. And instead, they were put into like a home in the suburbs of Liverpool, a separate sort of rental home situation. I mean, still nice, don't get me wrong. But this was because Thomas, even though he owned this 
huge house with all this land couldn't imagine being in such close quarters with his own children and grandchildren. So that should tell you something about Thomas as well. Florence, Bruce's wife, it was it was a big adjustment being in England. Gareth Russell, who wrote an amazing book on the Titanic called The Ship of Dreams. And Gareth, if you're listening, come on the pod. I'll die of excitement. <laughs> it would be amazing. But he said that to this great line, Florence, who, quote, had never quite accustomed herself to giving up a life, spent shuttling pleasurably between homes on Madison Avenue and in Tuxedo Park for residency in the Ismay's faux baronial pile outside Liverpool. I just love that quote. So Bruce, Bruce really turned inward at this point. He became close pretty much only to his daughter, Margaret, and became even more of a loner than he had already been. And keep in mind, he already was a bit of a loner. He went to the theater alone. He worked nonstop. And he ate, I am not kidding you, cold turkey for dinner almost every evening of his life. Even when his wife, who was trying to entertain people, become part of the society around her, even though she was uncomfortable in this new place, even when she would host these elaborate dinner parties. There's another horrible story at this point. That when Florence went into labor with their fifth child, she was staying at Dawpool, the big estate, with Margaret, her mother-in-law. She went into labor and not wanting to have the bother of the labor and birth under her roof, Margaret sends Florence back to her home in Liverpool by horse and carriage. And during that journey, a baby girl was born, stillborn. Florence at this point, I don't think ever really could forgive the family for all that that had happened. That was probably, a, I would imagine, another uh, punctuated, defining moment uh, in that whole family. So Thomas died in 1899. He was not to see the modern century to come, for better or worse, I guess. But he got to see the launch of his ship, the Oceanic, whose magnificent interior had been his absolute passion over the previous few years. At this point, he was worth $40 million. On the day of his funeral, the city of Liverpool flew its flags at half-mast. But (laughs) Bruce sold his father's baby pretty fast. In 1901, he was approached by American industrialist J.P. Morgan, a master, of course, at banking and consolidation. I could do a whole episode on him, but I honestly don't know if I will. It's sort of um, industrial history. I don't know. We'll see. But he was looking to, Morgan was looking to monopolize the North Atlantic trade by bringing the various American and European steamships under one ownership, notably to fix the fares. He offered the White Star Line shareholders 10 times the value of the line's earnings for 1900, which to note, I also read, were not even disclosed at that point. So he's blindly offering this amazingly large amount of money. Uh, Ismay also insisted on another $7 million in cash. The deal was done. And notably, this deal actually cut out the daughters of the family because in his will, Thomas Ismay had put a stipulation that they couldn't invest in any other shipping firm. The ships would 
under this new deal, continue to sail under a British flag and to employ a British crew, but they would be owned by Americans. The International Mercantile Marine, which I will be referring to from this point on as the IMM, was formed by the joining of White Star Line with the American Line, Red Star Line, Dominion Line, Atlantic Transport Line, Leyland Line. But Ismay insisted that White Star still have its own offices. The British were mad because they thought the White Star Line had become American, to be clear. And Americans were mad because they thought the IMM was just this huge British White Star Line. And so the venture was ill-fated from the get-go in many ways, and really a near comical loss of money. So in 1904, Morgan begged Ismay to come on as president of the trust. I mean, keep in mind, this is a big deal. He was viewed by Morgan, this renowned industrialist, as someone who could swoop in and save him. Bruce was 42. He had hoped to retire early, and he wanted to focus on his interests in the railroads. He liked that work. He didn't want to live in New York half the year, which is what this job might entail. He brought an end, kind of, to his dad's dynasty, so... No doubt he was torn, perhaps thinking that he owed it to his family and maybe even the world to take this job, to try to do right by the White Star Line. But also let's not forget that Morgan ruled his interests with an iron fist, and he probably pressured Ismay more than we could even know. Ismay crossed the Atlantic over 80 times ultimately holding the record number of crossings between England and America and spending the equivalent of two and a half years floating on the ocean. And I have to say, I can't imagine someone would do that unless they loved being out at sea. And I think that that Bruce Ismay really and truly did. And a lot of his ships, he would go out on maiden voyages, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. He wanted to be there for the first trip across on their ships. Even before the sinking, he was despised by Americans for inheriting his position. But in Britain, he was ironically despised by many for his lack of pedigree, for acting the part of an aristocrat when he worked at a, as a trade, at a trade for a living, excuse me. He was a Liverpudlian businessman. So he was already, again, this man on the outside. He was in between, his identity seemingly open for interpretation. So here's where we get to Titanic, guys. (laughs) So take a drink. I'm recording in the morning, so mine is coffee. But if it was later, it would probably be a nice little sip of brandy at this point. So the story goes that one summer evening in 1905, Ismay and his wife Florence sit down to dinner at the home of William, now Lord Peary, remember him, and that they birthed the idea of the Olympic and the Titanic. This is a romantic idea. As a historian, I often kind of mad at myself for how uh, practically I think about things like this. But I mean, this is what these people did. They were always building bigger ships And that's probably why these plans were in the works for weeks, months, maybe even years. They weren't necessarily born at just this one dinner. The truth is, Peary is much more of a character here 
than you usually hear about. He was the second largest shareholder in the IMM. That's important to know. He cheered on the deal with Morgan. He cheered Ismay coming on board IMM. He probably even at least partially dreamed up Titanic. There's this famous photo of Ismay and Peary walking beside the massive hull of Titanic right before its launch on May 31st, 1911. And this is the point where it still has to be fitted inside with all of its interiors. So it's going to be almost another year before it sails. There's a lot of detail that I could go into about the construction of the ship. And I promise I will in future episodes. There's a huge well (laughs) of stories in Belfast where it was built. I mean, this, I can't even, I can't even imagine how many hours of content that could be in itself. But Ismay's most notorious decision as managing director at this time and as president of the IMM is absolutely his relationship to lifeboats. And this is the question of epic proportions, right? This is what people still sit around and debate. Why not enough boats? Why aren't there enough boats on this massive ship? Alexander Carlyle, working for Harland and Wolf, they're the ones that built the ship, in 1909 was reportedly nervous even then about how few boats would be on these huge new ships. And since White Star Line had trusted Harlan and Wolf to make decisions, remember, they're working, they're working on a um, no-fixed-cost system. They are letting Harlan and Wolf use the best materials, make the best ships that they possibly can uh, with no expenses spared. And so Carlisle decides that he's going to sort of take matters into his own hands. And he has the Welland Davit Company in Sweden design new davits that would hold up to 64 boats for these massive new ships. They could hold more than one lifeboat in a davit, whereas previously just have one davit, one lifeboat kind of thing. So he has the, the company design these. He gave an interview a few days after the sinking. He said all this, everything I just told you. But he never said why it ended up sailing, why the Titanic ended up sailing without those boats. He did insinuate that it was the idea was rejected because it would force all the other boats in the White Star Line and also in these competing companies to put the same technology on board right away, that that might be met with some objection. So that was an issue. Apparently, according to some sources... He never openly told Ismay that he was worried. One of the reasons that these davits were created was to save money, that if the regulations eventually increased industry-wide, because that's the sad thing, this ship did meet regulations on the number of boats. These were outdated numbers that the board used to determine how many lifeboats would be on these passenger ships. The relationship to the number of boats to tonnage of ship, completely outdated. So Titanic was up to regulation. But basically that these if the number of lifeboats required ever increased, then this technology would already be on board and Titanic wouldn't have to be re-outfitted with new technology. So it was an economic decision as much as anything, which is important to remember. Titanic historian Walter Lord put it best. I know this sounds confusing, so I'll use a quote from him to do a much better job than I am. 
Lord wrote that showing Ismay the potential, that Carlyle's showing Ismay the potential was, quote, like a valentine being slipped under the door by a faint-hearted suitor. Ismay claims he never saw the plans or understood this alternative option where Titanic had 48 freaking boats. But do you believe that? That he really didn't get it? I don't know. I don't know that I do. Behind the scenes by 1912, Ismay was antsy, ready to pass on the reins, but not many people knew that. In March of 1912, his daughter Margaret was married. Uh, The reception was held at Ismay's very stylish new home in Mayfair. And initially, Margaret was supposed to be on the Titanic as well, but she was obviously on her honeymoon instead. Florence and the other children, they'd had three more, went with Bruce to Southampton on April 9th, where Florence and the kids would then leave on a motoring trip to Wales. Florence had been enough on enough of these voyages, by all accounts, at this point, and Bruce was to go by himself. Uh, he could not stay away. One of the deluxe B-deck promenade suites had been booked by Morgan, but Ismay took it instead. Morgan couldn't make the voyage, which is something that has birthed a thousand conspiracy theories. Maybe we'll talk about that at some point. To note, another of these suites was taken by a woman named Charlotte Cardeza. Again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing things 100% correctly, and I'm sorry if I'm not, who would later say, she would later say some pretty nasty stuff about Ismay. So once on board, he greeted the fairs. Here's Marion for the first time on Titanic, probably in an awkward, bumbling way. And he also greeted the Ryersons, who were traveling to their eldest son's funeral, unfortunately. He did do this nice thing where he arranged for the Ryersons to have an extra stateroom and obvious, and additionally another steward as well. Bruce had been on the maiden voyage of the Olympic, and he ordered painstaking changes to be made to her sister, the Titanic, even though the ships were nearly identical. He wanted constantly for things to be getting better. This is a theme, right? Just constant improvement, painstaking attention to detail, as we've talked about. He knew these ships backward and forward, down to tiny details. And I want you to keep that in mind as we go over the events about to unfold. He'd ordered, for example, firmer mattresses for the Titanic because the ones on the Olympic were quote unquote, too springy. He'd ordered a promenade on B-deck enclosed to protect first-class passengers from overspray from the ocean. Unlike his father, who was often on the bridge of the ship with the captain, many sources claim that Bruce actually preferred to be alone in his cabin for most of the voyage, particularly during the day, going over reports and things. And that's also something to keep in mind. He did later admit that at the very beginning of the journey, there was a meeting with engineer Joseph Bell in his suite, in Ismay's suite, concerning the speed of the ship and making plans to test its speed in the coming days. Now, to be clear, owners were not romantic creatures. They were men of order, separate. They were pen pushers. But he once wrote that he may have loved Titanic too much. It's possible that Bruce Ismay was a combination of this ordered and meticulous owner with someone who 
had this very, again, to use the word romantic, this very romantic love of the ship and the water. I think those two things could have existed together. But a passenger named Elizabeth Lines claims that she overheard Ismay with Captain Smith at lunch on Saturday. This would be the day before the sinking. And that Ismay was encouraging the commander to speed up, that he was going on and on about beating speed records, making history by beating speed records. Lyons claims that Smith mostly just nodded during this conversation, kind of just head up and down, that he was acting in deference to Ismay, that that was the tone. And interestingly enough, you can see this scene play out in the 1997 movie. If you watch the scene where Ismay and Smith are at this lunch, there's a woman in a really big hat sitting right off to the side, and she kind of gets up towards the end of the conversation and leaves. But that scene is in there. Historians, though, dispute the line story, pointing out that arriving in New York on Tuesday night could have caused docking problems and would have disrupted passengers' plans. And another point is like, why would Ismay have wanted to miss the Grand Harbor welcome that was planned? Because he was obviously a man completely about publicity. So it's debatable. There's also the option that he was planning on beating the speed record by checking in at the lighthouse checkpoint and then sort of waiting to dock. But also Captain Smith was on record saying that they would not do this because Titanic was, quote, a Wednesday ship. Some other things that we know. John and Jack Thayer ran into Ismay without Mary in this time. And Ismay showed them a soon-to-be infamous uh, ice warning from the ship, the Baltic, and told them that in preparation for a full-speed run, weather permitting, the next day, that two more boilers were opened up. Ismay also remarked, Jack Thayer remembered, that they'd reach ice at 9 p.m. We know that Marion Thayer and Emily Ryerson also saw Ismay with this ice warning, and that when their husband showed up, he left awkwardly. Shocking. <laughs> and this could be interpreted, obviously, as his, him flirting with Thayer and being interrupted, as being bumbling, um, perhaps also the awkwardness in conversation with Ryerson because she was deep in grief at the time. Perhaps he was even waving the warning around to show off Marconigrams as this new technology, like a new toy. Either way, we know they met. Ismay remembers seeing Marion then. And we know he had the warning in his pocket. We know that Smith asked for that message back in the smoking room around seven that night. Uh, we also knew that Smith was fully aware that ice lay ahead. There had been multiple ice warnings. We'll cover that. I, <laughs> this, the timeline of ice warnings is its own, <clears throat> excuse me, its own creature. It's like a living, breathing animal. And I'm going to have to be careful with how I present that. It's a lot and there's a lot to debate. So for this reason, Smith had delayed the turning of the corner, which is this point at which the ship changed course to seem to steam due west for the Nantucket lightship. So he had changed that from 5 to 5.50. So Smith is there making changes based on this ice. So this set the Titanic on a course 10 miles uh, south of the normal shipping route. We also know, and this is not spoken about enough, Captain Smith had gone 43 years 
without incident, but in the period of the prior eight months, he had two accidents. One was the Olympics collision with the ship Hawk. Another was driving Olympic over a submerged wreck and losing a propeller blade. And also one near miss, which is that the Titanic on her way out of Southampton almost collided with the ship, the New York. So the White Star Line was without a doubt giving him special leeway at this point. Most captains would have been let go after incidents such incidences such as this. So is it possible that Smith had some sort of cognitive issues going on? Or was he just too relaxed on these big ships because he thought they were sort of taking care of themselves? I mean, I honestly think either one is possible. So when the ship hit the iceberg, Ismay recounts being awoken by the impact. He, quote unquote, presumed that he was, at least, um, according to testimony. He put on an overcoat over his pajamas. We know what a big deal it was for him to put on an overcoat. So there you go. Heading to the bridge where he became aware of the extent of the damage. And I have to say, (laughs) people seem to be really invested in what Ismay was wearing at this point. In books with very little mention of clothing, otherwise, there are always these long notes about what he was wearing. Was it pajamas with the coat? Was it just pajamas? Had he changed into a suit? Was he in slippers? There's this silent war going on between Titanic historians about what he was wearing. They're screaming at one another in the world's most passive aggressive game. And I'm guessing it has to do with laying claim about where he was and when, how we got to the bridge, what role he played in starting engines up a second time, uh, who he interacted with, what he overheard. Survivor Archibald Gracie, a first class passenger who would, to note, write an account of the sinking right after it, made a point to say he spotted Ismay at this juncture and that he looked like he was wearing a suit at this point, and Gracie thought he was preoccupied but not alarmed. Ismay later couldn't recall if he'd gone to the bridge, he couldn't recall which officers he'd talked to, and if we are to believe Ismay, he at that point knew very little of the geography and inner workings of the ship, of the crew areas, the ship that was the crown jewel in his company's cap, the ship he'd ordered special mattresses for. Keep that in mind. From here, it seems pretty accepted that Ismay went hurriedly to the lifeboats. These 14 regular-sized lifeboats, four collapsibles, and two emergency boats that could have been 48, (laughs) but they're not. They're 20 total. And very nearly, he became hysterical as he herded people onto them, women and children. Two officers, Pittman and Lowe, would later recall Ismay running around hysterical, demanding that lifeboats be lowered faster. They both claimed that they didn't realize who he was when they encountered him in this situation. Lowe even told him to go to hell at one point. That is documented. But the moment, the moment that would make Ismay the unofficial scapegoat for an entire tragedy, this moment when he himself gets into a lifeboat, collapsible sea, we don't know much for sure. Even then, Ismay eventually changed his story a lot. 
Harry Sr., a fireman, said he saw Ismay get into the first boat lowered, but this isn't correct. Charlotte Cardeza, remember she had another one of the millionaire suites next to Ismay, she claims he was the first one to climb into the first boat. Again, definitely not true. She obviously had some sort of chip on her shoulder. Uh, A first-class steward remembers him standing in the boat to help women and children on, and that's an important distinction because Ismay would mostly claim that he had been still on the ship kind of pushing women and children on, and that he didn't get on the lifeboat until it was basically being lowered away. 16-year-old Georgette McGill remembers him being ordered into the last boat by Captain Smith himself. August Weckman, again, I hope I'm pronouncing this name right, a barber, swore that Ismay was thrown in by Officer Wild, who did not live to tell that tale, so we don't know from his perspective, obviously. And Weichman was, keep in mind, Ismay's personal barber and had been given a shop on every single White Star liner. George Rowe, he was the seaman in charge of, ca- of Collapsible Sea. He said Ismay got in before, not after, the lowering started. But 40 years later, when he was speaking with Walter Lord, he didn't recall seeing Ismay until they hit the water. And the state of things seems up for debate as well. An Irish immigrant, Margaret Devaney, she was 19, remembers being caught in a crowd and literally pushed in. There's a Lebanese passenger whose husband also got in and she saw others from Lebanon being shot at. She said they were so terrified for her husband that they covered him in clothes at the bottom of the boat. Uh, There's another 18-year-old who said she was pushed through crowds to get to sea. Um, A woman named Emily Goldsmith said that sea was surrounded by a line of, of crewmen linking arms to keep men out. Many reported gunfire at this boat. 34-year-old framer named Abraham Hyman said there was so much confusion at sea that people were literally clawing at one another. So, <laughs> the, and, and, and honestly, if you think about what was going on, unfortunately, these seem like very realistic accounts to the scene at one of, I mean, this is one of the last boats being loaded. Makes perfect sense. Also in Collapsible Sea was an American polo-playing millionaire whose car you might be familiar with, a brand new Renault motor car stored in the hold of the ship. I won't say anything else for now. Carter maintained he and Ismay were asked in by an officer and that his wife and children were already off on the ship, that Carter's wife and children were already off on the ship. To note, Lucille Carter's boat didn't leave until 15 minutes later. She filed for divorce two years later. wonder why. Gracie claims that there was no chaos at sea and that he saw Ismay and Carter just get in. So my question is, why didn't Gracie just get in? Gracie's memoirs also famously recalled that Ismay had hurried stewardess Violet Jessup, who will be an episode, I promise. She's an amazing figure in this story. That Ismay had hurried her into a lifeboat, even though she said she was, quote, only a stewardess. And Ismay replied, never mind, you are a woman, take your place. But in her actual account, she recalls being put into a boat by someone named Mason and handed a baby. No mention of Ismay. Ismay would insist until his dying day, that there were no women and children left around when he got into that boat. 
And also that seriously, there was no one else around when he got into that boat. The 1958 film, A Night to Remember, has an interpretation of how this could all be true. In it, Ismay is shuttling people into the boat. Uh, It's frantic. It's crowded. There's chaos. The officers then yell that that boat is full. These people need to move on, find another boat, basically. But Ismay sticks around, and he sort of looks sheepishly and then calls for anybody else for the boat. He knows what he's doing in this interpretation, that the people have left. He's saying the right words. He is, for appearances sake, you know, calling for women and children. And then he gets in the boat, and Officer Murdoch sees him, and they share this look, Ismay obviously looking ashamed, Murdoch, this look of recognition, and he lets it go. He lets Ismay go. And in the 97 movie, it's similar, except that in the 97 film, there actually aren't people around. Ismay has been helping to load a boat. Uh, They haven't been able to find enough bodies to fill it. And when he calls, is there anyone else? It does really seem like that specific boat needs bodies to save. So it's two interpretations, but both have that shared look between Ismay and Murdoch, where the officers, you know, he sees who just got on a lifeboat and he sort of casts his eyes away. It's a very powerful moment in both movies. And if I haven't said it enough, I recommend watching both. So to quote Wilson, remember who wrote, who wrote the great book about Ismay from a few years back, quote, at 49, Ismay was the oldest person there in that boat and the oldest man by 10 years six foot four with a waxed mustache and the handsome face of a matinee idol. He sat amongst Lebanese, Chinese, and Swedish passengers in his pajamas, coat, and slippers, and spoke to no one. So there's an image. She's also got him still in his pajamas and in an overcoat, just to note. And so here is the image we have of Ismay in a boat, rowing away from the sinking of the ship that was the culmination of his own professional efforts, of his dad's life's work, to Americans, this aristocrat in fancy slippers, slippers, a total coward, to the British, this tradesman who impersonated a gentleman. And now look at what had happened. Here he was, right in the middle again. At 7.30 that morning, Captain Haddock of the Olympic, Titanic's sister ship, received a Marconi gram from Captain Rostron of the Carpathia, that's of course the ship that rescued Titanic, that Ismay was on board but under an opiate in the doctor's cabin. Honestly, we have no idea what really happened when Ismay boarded the Carpathia. That absolute truth is lost to time. One of the officers said that he came on board and that he declared, I'm Ismay! Get me something to eat. Mrs. Lucien P. Smith, elite women were referenced only according to their husband's names, grown, claims he stepped on board demanding a stateroom. Second officer Charles Lightholder, who was the most senior officer to survive from Titanic, later claimed that Ismay was utterly distraught on board Carpathia about the women who drowned, that he was wailing in there, that he wanted to take their place. But at the U.S. inquiry, Ismay was asked what percentage of women and children were saved, and he had no freaking idea. 
He hadn't even asked. Make of that what you will. Jack Thayer, Marion's 17-year-old son, who had survived by balancing on a collapsible alongside Lightoller, claims that Ismay was still in those infamous pajamas and that his hair, once black, had turned almost completely snow white on board the Carpathia. We do know from his statement a few days later that Ismay had already, whether rightly so or not, decided he'd done nothing wrong. Quote, as I lay in my stateroom on board the Carpathia, I went over every detail of the affair. There was nothing that I did that I am sorry for. I can truthfully say that my conscience is clear. There are some bald facts that deserve mentioning here, and many of them contributed to Ismay's being blamed for so much of the disaster. Only a single telegram from Ismay from Carpathia to the IMM, those would have been received by Philip Franklin, who was the American vice president. Only a single one of those mentions the actual sinking at all. Quote, deeply regret advise you, Titanic sank this morning after collision with an iceberg, resulting in serious loss of life. Further particulars later. It was signed Yamsey, Ismay's secret Marconi Graham moniker. It's just his name backwards, by the way. Captain Rostron apparently made Ismay do this. He later said Ismay was mentally ill at this time. Um, and the message got lost in a pile and wasn't even sent right away. Plus, more particulars were never sent. His telegrams, Ismay's telegrams from the Carpathia, communicated only two main things. That he wanted the ship, the Cedric, to be held for him and his officers so they could get back to England right away, and that he needed new clothes. So again, this man is probably in those pajamas. He informs Franklin, the VP of IMM, that George Widener had not lived. Widener was the son of a director of IMM. And he also asked that his wife Florence be informed he'd be coming home on the Cedric. But seriously, guys, no further details. Nothing else provided at this point. Franklin replies, quote, a concise Marconi gram of actual accident greatly needed for the enlightenment of the public. That never came. No news, no accurate lists of survivors came until the Carpathia arrived at 9 p.m. on April 18th. It was assumed on shore that Ismay had put some sort of embargo on information we have no idea if that's actually true. And Captain Rostran had also said that he made an effort to keep info from the press until he could get passengers home to their loved ones. So it bears mentioning that we actually have no proof that on the Carpathia, Ismay even looked for his friends, Dr. O'Laughlin, who he dined with just hours before, or Charles Hayes, who was traveling as his guest, or Richard Fry, his valet. Or George Dodd, his former butler, who had been working now in the first class. Or Arthur Hayter, his steward. Or William Harrison, his secretary. We do have some sources telling us that he warned Marion Thayer during the sinking about how little time the Titanic had left. There you go. 
What we know for sure is that survivors congregated on the Carpathia in very tight quarters, and rumors abounded. Ismay became a target right away, this sequestered corporate tyrant hidden away in a private cabin while other people slept on open decks. Even Maggie Brown, who expressed sympathy for other men who had lived, was revolted by him, referring to his cabin as the, quote, quarters of the secluded plutocrat. And Emily Ryerson let it be known that she and Marion had run into Ismay around five that Sunday afternoon and that he'd showed off, shown off the Marconi gram and admitted that they were, quote, in among the icebergs. That's according to Ryerson. And that he said something about firing up the, the boilers. Also, that Ismay had mentioned something about a ship that needed tow, but he had scoffed at the idea of the Titanic towing a smaller ship. I'm not making some gendered statement by implying that only women were gossiping here, by the way. I mean, keep in mind, most of the survivors were women. So the Cedric was not held for them. And Senator William Alden Smith had already organized plans for an inquest that was to happen immediately. And he appealed to President Taft, and President Taft authorized a Treasury revenue cutter to intercept the Carpathia. They didn't want Ismay off the ship or any officer off the ship until they'd had time to serve them papers. So at 9.30, survivors began to descend at New York Harbor in the rain. 70 women were widows. First off were first class, then third class, including six orphaned babies carried out in the arms of crew. Through a loudspeaker, Captain Rostron announced that anyone who tried to come on board like press, for example, would be shot down. Franklin, and remember, he's the VP of the IMM, he goes in with Senator Smith. Franklin rushes in first, delivers to Ismay his clothes, a scotch cap, some new shoes, and eventually Smith pushes his way in as well. Franklin tries to tell him that Ismay's too ill, but Smith doesn't buy that. The three of them come off at 11 p.m. flanked by journalists, and Ismay was battered right away. And I will say he was not given a moment to breathe. The survivor of a shipwreck, not given a moment to breathe by the press. He said he didn't know the number of the boat he came off of and insisted that Titanic had not been going too fast. At his first appearance in the U.S. Senate hearings, he says it was, quote, our intention on Monday or Tuesday to drive the ship at full speed. And immediately the senators wondered, and we wonder endlessly now, who was this hour? Ismay denied being involved with any speed decisions, denied consulting with Captain Smith about the ship's maneuvers at all. When asked if he knew of the ship's proximity to ice, he says no, but that he knew ICE had been reported. This doesn't seem to mesh with Emily Ryerson's claims. And at the inquiry, he also seems to have no mastery of navigation, which makes little sense given his life on the ocean. He did, however, here suggest that the ship would, would have survived if it had hit the iceberg head on. The most damning accusation in the air is that he advocated for speeding the ship up, for trying to break a speed record for White Star, and that ultimately he put profit above lives. He bristled at any suggestion that he was running the ship, 
absolutely out of my province, he said. I am not a navigator. I was simply a passenger on board the ship. Simply a passenger? No matter where you fall in this debate, there's no way that's true, right? Further damning was Captain Rostron's testimony that the captain on a vessel has absolute control, but if they get an order from an owner and don't obey it, they might be dismissed. In these proceedings, he was made to look foolish, to be sure, Ismay, but the brevity and the vagueness of his answers did absolutely nothing to help his cause. And at this point, I would love to read an excerpt from the hearings uh, that sort of attests to Ismay's claim that he was somehow on a, an empty ship at the time. When you entered the lifeboat yourself, and this is Senator Smith, you say there were no passengers on that part of the ship. Ismay replies, none. Did you see any struggle among the men to get into these boats? No. Was there any attempt, as the boat was being lowered past the other decks, to have you take on more passengers? None, sir. There were no passengers there to take on. And at this point, Wilson, in her book, has a great line about this testimony. And she writes, The East Room, which is a room at the Waldorf Astoria where the hearings were being held, quote, listened spellbound as Ismay described leaving behind him an empty ship. Ismay describes leaving this empty, peaceful ship, jumping into a boat as it's lowered because the opportunity lay in front of him to live, and there seemed to be a spot beckoning him to do so. But none of this makes logistical sense. Remember those testimonies from other people in his boat? There were 1,500 screaming people on that ship at the end. He did admit to facing away from the Titanic as it took its final plunge, uh, which led to a very famous political cartoon that you might have seen entitled J. Brute Ismay, where he is seen in the boat, the Titanic is sinking in the background, and he is turned away. Another damning accusation was that he wasn't a gentleman. And this was in an era where among these wealthy people who worshipped elegance, the gentlemen were Astor, Guggenheim, these men who were smoking cigarettes on the deck as the ship went down, waiting for their noble demise. It's crucial to note here, too, that Senator Smith was an ardent supporter of the little guy, so to speak, and he had an agenda, too. Most historians agree that part of that agenda was to see J.P. Morgan burned alive. Smith kept Ismay in the United States for weeks. During the inquiry, when he wasn't on the stand, Ismay paced corridors of the Waldorf Astoria, smoking cigarettes. I can't say I blame him. When he said at the table, he idly drew an image of the white star flag over and over again. He listened as Lightholder came off as, at times, his stooge, testifying as well to the lack of crowds, lack of chaos, but to note later in life, Lightholder changed his story. Lightoller said he'd been responsible for Ismay calling for the Cedric to be held. This in particular gave off a distinct odor of cover-up. And ultimately, he testified that Ismay had been put bodily into a boat by Officer Wilde, who, again, didn't live to reveal this truth. 
Lightoller also curiously had very little to say about the icebergs or Captain Smith. Lightoller also admitted, apparently later in life, that right after the collision, Ismay had ordered Smith to go, quote-unquote, slow ahead, and that moving the ship again, just a little even, had allowed water to come in more rapidly to all her damaged parts and fill those watertight compartments. Survivor testimony that the ship moved a little bit again after that initial stop, that lines up with this. But some people reject this theory altogether, saying it technically doesn't make sense. Also, during these testimonies, you have Officer Lowe, again, the one who told Ismay to go to hell. He was lauded by many because of that. And a U.S. paper suggested that towns named Ismay should change theirs to Lowe. Some towns, to note, actually did change their names from Ismay when this happened. Not to Lowe, but they did change their names. And that just gives you an idea of how big this story was in the United States. This is how big the story of Ismay's supposed cowardice had grown. In the end, perhaps due to Marion's pleading, Emily Ryerson never gave an official statement on their meeting with Ismay on the deck. And for all that the inquiry seemed to focus on Ismay, the final report didn't discuss Ismay's survival really at all. And Senator Smith vaguely concluded that Ismay's presence had unconsciously influenced Captain Smith. In other words... He couldn't prove anything, and the simplicity of what had happened didn't ultimately allow for the complexity of all these accusations. In Ismay's own words, quote, I felt the ship was going down, and I got into the boat. But Ismay's was, in the end, a bloody trial by press, aided chiefly by William Randolph Hearst, who owned major papers in every region of the country. And if he disliked you, well, good luck. He met Ismay way back when Ismay was a White Star agent and disliked him from the start. He's the one who ran the Jay Brute Ismay cartoon. This seems to be a theme. Ismay seems to have been in part persecuted because he wasn't a likable guy. I should mention that Senator Smith was drug around too in all this coverage, And many believe his motivations for the inquiry were precisely for the press coverage. Ismay's message to the press, quote, what kind of man do you think I am? And tell me how I was different from any other passengers. Again, to me, that's unbelievable. But the press, the thing is, the press relied on information from passengers, the ones that hadn't been called to the inquiry, women, third-class passengers, and those people weren't buying this idea that he had just been like one of them. And honestly, this is the argument of his I buy the least. Ismay finally left for England aboard the Adriatic on May 2nd, where at least in Liverpool, he was greeted by waving crowds. He fared better in the press in general there, but not by much. Horatio Bottomley, spokesman for The Working Man and owner of the weekly John Bull publication, addressed Ismay directly and said that the humblest immigrant in steerage had more moral right to a seat in the lifeboat than you. That weekly ran a full-on three-month campaign against Ismay at the subsequent British inquiry when asked, Has it occurred to you that except perhaps apart from the captain, you as the responsible managing director deciding the number of boats owed your life to every other person on that ship? And Ismay replied, it has not. 
When he states again he was a passenger, he's asked if he paid for his fare. This triggered laughter in the room. He is, just as he was in the U.S. here, unable to explain why Smith gave him that ice warning. Had he been on Titanic, some sort of super captain, had he been the puppeteer, this question still unanswered after two inquiries, one in the U.S. and one in England. So here we reach a point where we do know something of his inner dialogue, at least the part he was willing to make known to Marion Thayer. Marion Thayer came from a picture-perfect Philadelphia stock. Think Rose in the movie Titanic if she'd had less modern sensibility and wanted to buy into that first-class lifestyle more. She was much commented on and renowned for her fashion, Marion was, her immaculate comportment. She'd married John Thayer, who before he'd taken over as VP of the Philadelphia Railroad, had been a premier cricket player. They'd been frequent passengers on this North Atlantic route, seeking out rest and relaxation in Europe, even at times visiting nerve doctors, as they were called then, in Switzerland for John. It's well documented that Marion loved people's stories, loved to care for others. So it's not surprising that Ismay took to her, and for whatever core reason, perhaps lost to history, she chose to care for Ismay, at least in the beginning. She called him before he left for England, we know this, and he sent her a message as he was leaving from the pilot boat off the Adriatic. And a letter from Marion was waiting for him on that ship when he got on board. And in it, she said she wished she died that night with her husband. We don't know Marion's full motivations. She would eventually, in one letter, ask for Bruce's help in giving special attention to the insurance claim on her husband, John. When Ismay refused that, it seemed to start the crack in the eventual complete break of their relationship, of these letters back and forth. Could this have been part of her motivation all along? Perhaps. For Bruce, though, his motivations seem very clear. Beneath the surface, beneath the veneer of going back to work, returning home, of these cold answers at these inquiries, he was suffering from major post-traumatic stress disorder. Apparently, his nightmares would wake up the entire house and all of his family. He was blackballed from clubs that he belonged to. He went to visit friends and was turned away from them. His wife, Florence, forbade the word Titanic to be used in their household. Marion Thayer was a person he could give more of his sorrow to than those in his own family. And why that was, I've seen a lot of speculation. But I personally shy away from making any sort of statement about his marriage. I just don't think enough is known. But indeed, some of his letters read like this. And this is to Marion. Quote, my wife has gone to church and I am sitting writing to you by an open window, looking over the garden. Oh, how I wish you were here. And in them, he is desperate to talk of Titanic. Here his wife has forbidden the word being spoken in, in their home, but he's desperate in these letters to speak of it. Is it possible that this man, the scapegoat for the loss of 1,500 lives, never got a chance to say what he really wanted to in public. 
On the other hand, it's possible he was just more effusive with Marion, but repeated the things he'd said in the inquiry, just in slightly different language. To Marion, he insisted his presence on that ship was no different than hers. Should she feel guilty for living? Then neither should he. He's so confounding. (laughs) In another letter, he reports being depressed, having lost all desire to live, that the sea was dead to him now, a life's work down the drain. Do these sound like the statements of a man who is at peace with his actions, like he claimed? The thing is, maybe so. Maybe he had been full of the truth and perhaps just punished for telling it. Or perhaps he danced around admitting more realities to Marion. His letters are repetitive, sad, but they never actually dig that much deeper. He sends her an engraved silver frame with the date the Titanic went down. What do we make of that? Eventually, Marion's correspondence wanes, and at one point she begins writing more to Florence Ismay, Bruce's wife, no doubt to make it clear to Bruce that her interests are platonic. She comes back to Europe, but she never sees him again. It is worth noting that of the three women who defended Bruce, two first-class women and a stewardess who says he put her in a boat, two were romantically related in some vague way, Thayer, and then also Edith Rosenbaum Russell, who later claimed to have an affair with him. Interestingly enough, the big biography of the Ismay family, written by a man named Wilton Oldham, doesn't mention Marion Thayer at all. A good reminder that really you can write any kind of history about someone that you want to. Now, the Rosenbaum Russell, well, actually accusation, um, her suggestion that they had an affair, that one I tend to doubt. Ismay was hidden away at this point, spending time in Scotland and Ireland. He briefly felt the desire to delay his retirement, but the company he'd headed, the company his own father had birthed, essentially pushed him out at this point, made it known that his resignation would not be just anticipated, but very much expected. In June of 1913, he handed over the presidency of IMM and the chairmanship of the White Star Line to a longtime business partner, Harold Sanderson. When war broke out, White Star ships turned into armed cruisers and hospital ships. In 1925, the IMM got rid of its foreign holdings Airline passage was not far off, and steamship trips across the Atlantic would soon become mostly a thing of the past. Later in the 20s, the company was bought by a chairman of the Royal Mail Steam Packet Company. He was, as Wilson puts it, the man who actually sank the White Star Line and was eventually imprisoned for fraud. The government attempted to save the company, merging them with their longtime rival, Cunard, And by 1933, Thomas Ismay's most beloved child, the White Star Line, was all but gone. A man obsessed with detail, I'd like to think, maybe it's wishful thinking, that Bruce Ismay would appreciate our dissecting the complexity of his life to try and parse out a fuller picture. So much is contradictory. As Gareth Russell points out in Ship of Dreams, Ismay was cast simultaneously as a villain and a serial weakling. So which was it? So there's a story about the musicians on the Titanic. So they were working for Blacks, which was a talent agency that worked as a middleman with steamships. But they still signed the ship's articles for a token shilling a month, putting them under the captain's authority. This was very important out on open water. 
Blacks cut their pay grade and they were making less now. Union, the union protested, went to Ismay, and Ismay said the musicians could just be passengers. And when passengers go through immigration, they have to prove they have $50, which is a lot of money at that time. So this is insane. The musicians on Titanic were listed as second class, but still had cramped quarters on E-deck next to the potato washer with no perks of being a passenger. I would just like to interject and say that I very much question Bruce Ismay's definition of the word passenger. So when families asked for compensation after they they were turned away because these men had not been crew. So after the sinking, their families were not compensated properly. So there's stories like that. But then there are stories like him caring for the Ryerson family or that he started a pension for widows of the disaster right after it. He gave money away all his life to charitable organizations, supported people who fought in the war in World War I. In the inquiries and in letters to Marion, Bruce very much presents himself as a man of no action, of being inconspicuous, of not knowing. But his whole life had been the opposite. His dad had loathed him, after all, for his quick thinking. He was a man always on the move. He did things. For better or worse, he made decisions. The images we have in our mind of him pushing Captain Smith in the 97 movie again in the Tony award-winning musical called Titanic He is this mustachioed villain. These images are influenced by the press coverage, of course, and by that first draft of history from the hearings, but they did come from a place of believability. People who knew Ismay, they wouldn't have been surprised by his having pressured someone into something as a corporate giant. And let's not forget he is a corporate giant at this point who wants his company to look good. This is all unfortunately believable. If White Star had proven to be negligible in the sinking, everybody's job would have been lost. Whether Lightholder fudged something or Ismay did or anyone did, we'll never know. But it's not shocking to see a company tow the company line. It wasn't then and it's not now. People also seem to want to speak for him a lot more than any other character from that night. And I am telling you, I have read a lot about a lot of these people. People want to get inside his head. They seem awfully sure of thoughts he had in those moments, even though Ismay never told us anything. How in the world can we say with any certainty what went through his head that night that he got in that boat? If we are to look to his only true testimony at the hearings, then we might believe that he actually wasn't thinking much at all. He once wrote to Marion that he felt stuck at the moment of his jump from that ship, and that's where the world left him from a standpoint of cultural history. But later in his life was not as empty as some accounts would lead you to believe. He worked as director of the London and Northwestern Railway, took a train into London every Sunday for the work week to do that for years. He participated in travel. He just He didn't like being around people that much, and it showed. He sat alone on park benches, went to shows on his own, and put a coat on the seat next to him. He continued to eat his cold turkey every day. But he also golfed every Easter in Scotland, spent time with his family. His grandkids do remember him as staid, some kind of shell almost. One called him a living corpse, tight-lipped, and always, always unable to speak of the disaster that had defined him. Malcolm Cheap, who is his grandson, has stated plainly, 
I suspect he suffered from PTSD. And his grandson cites how awful it must have been for Ismay to receive letters from strangers asking about the final moments of their family members' lives. That is horrid to think of. Malcolm says that he's in possession of documents and letters that show a whole nother side of Ismay, including a thank you note from the husband of a stewardess who wanted to thank Ismay for saving his wife's life. But, he says, a culture of silence prevailed through his family for generations, and they believe he had no role in the running of the ship. They believe his testimony. They believe he was just a passenger, a conspicuous one. Bruce and Florence bought a swath of land in County Galway in a Gaelic-speaking part of Connemara. I hope I pronounced that right. If you are in Ireland, I adore your country. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Bruce called it by its anglicized name, though, Costello. And here in the landscape of bogs, boulders, on a limestone terrain where the river Cashla cut through some of his acreage and he fished. He loved to fish. Bruce began this life we have always heard was of a recluse. But it really wasn't, like I said before. In fact, was this indictment of him really a fall? Or did he just slip back into his life similar to how it was before, perhaps just a bit more reclusive, a bit more of a loner. One current resident of Connemara, a man named Liam McConnemar, whose name, as I'm reading it, um, just from the little that I know, seems to mean of the place where he's from, uh, he was born the year Ismay died, remembers that his father was employed by Ismay as a ghillie and water bailiff to prevent poaching. He says that Ismay was a big employer of the region, and that everyone knew him. He had a nickname that I I am not going to try to pronounce in Gaelic, but the translation was was to a pun that means push me down. And they used to use it in terms of push me down to the lifeboat. So here he is once again in a place where he's seen as two things. He's seen as this benefactor to this rural place, but also is made fun of. Florence Ismay used to visit the schools with boxes of sweets uh, this same man, Liam, offered, quote, I've often thought about why he chose to live here by the sea. Did it remind him of what had happened? What a way to think about it. This man who loved the sea, loved being on it. Titanic had taken that from him, but he had to stay close to the water. By all accounts, the Ismays were liked and respected in the area. They provided employment in a place that was very poor at the time. People had just been eking out an existence from fishing and, and small farms at the time. They would share surpluses from their parties, things like fruit or extra fish. A woman named Marion Ridge is a third generation of a family to live in a house at the edge of this village. And her grandfather had written to Ismay asking for a recommendation for his son, her father, for the Navy. Seems ironic, uh, given his association with water events, but she says to him Ismay would have just been the local gentry who had contacts. So I guess this just proves that all of this could exist together then, and it can all exist together now. In 1936, Bruce had an operation to amputate his right leg below the knee. Contrary to how we'd view someone who is reclusive and depressive, even after his operation and at the age of 75, he installed a system of pulleys and gadgets so that he could still use the bathroom by himself. 
He died the following year after a stroke that left him unable to speak. He was cremated and his ashes placed in a shady plot in South London. I wonder really why not Liverpool or at his haven in Ireland? And as much as he turned away from ships after Titanic, from being on the sea at least, it is a fleet of sailing ships on his tomb. Maybe they're sailing ships and not steamships for a reason. But here's the inscription. It's from the Bible, from the book of James. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Maybe it was both in the end. Maybe he helped people and he saved himself. Jack Thayer remembers that at Collapsible Sea, this was Ismay's boat, a large crowd of men were pressing to get in. Quote, no women were around as far as I could see. And I saw Ismay, who had been assisting in the loading of the last boat, push his way into it. It was really every man for himself. According to Ismay biographer Oldham, later in his life, Bruce confided to his sister-in-law Constance that he had actually been thrown into the lifeboat as Lightoller had testified, that Officer Wilde had ordered him to, made it clear that it would be Ismay's job to be a witness to the sinking, explain the narrative to the whole world. If that was true, why did he keep that hidden? Did he actively choose then, if so, to be seen by the whole world as a coward? instead of taking on the weight of that history. The Ismay's Lodge in Ireland is privately owned now, and the stone had to be removed. But she did install one in honor of Bruce. And it said, in memory of Bruce Ismay, who spent many happy hours here from 1913 to 1936, he loved all wild and solitary places where we taste the pleasure of believing that what we see is boundless as we wish our souls to be. This can't be taken lightly. At least, I don't think so. This is important. It was written by a woman who, for better or worse, lived with him for almost 40 years. And surely her final thoughts mean something. She deserves to have a voice in telling us who he was. Perhaps the second half of his life was at least partly what he had always wanted, in that solitary place by the sea. Writer Luke Yankee penned a play about Ismay less than 10 years ago called The Last Lifeboat, in which he tries to dissect the man as we have here. Yankee said, quote, no matter how much money he gave up to set, to set up pensions for widows or to start new survivor organizations, he could never really wash the blood off of his hands. The survivor's guilt was incredible. But Yankee also says, here is this man who vowed to his father on his deathbed that he would make him proud by building the biggest, grandest ship the world had ever seen. And he did it. So there's the man that sailed that day from Southampton. And there's also the man who just days later had this to say. I deeply regret that I am compelled to make my personal statement when my whole thought is on the horror of the disaster. In building the Titanic, it was the hope of my associates and myself that we had built a vessel which could not be destroyed by the perils of the sea or dangers of navigation. The event has proven the futility of that hope. And then there were a dozen other men, a dozen other Ismays, the one who tried to impress his father 
time and time again, the one who had been through so many tragedies and losses of his own children. There were so many versions of him, and isn't that all of us, kind of? And isn't that why his story is so triggering, for lack of a better term? Because we all wonder if we are like him, if in one moment's decision, we might change the course of our lives and other people's lives in the decidedly wrong direction. Thanks for listening, you guys. On my website, I will have a complete list of my sources. That is unsinkablepod.com. And I will also suggest some books if you're interested in reading more about Ismay. And let me tell you, if you think this episode is long, I cut out pages and pages. I left in everything that was essential. There was no way to do a full portrait of this man and leave anything out that was in here. If you are someone who has listened to these first two episodes, I cannot tell you how much that means to me. This is a passion project I have been working on for so long, but I am new to podcasting. So I apologize if there are recording hiccups, if the audio is not perfect, I am working on it. Thank you to my husband for helping me learn all of the technology. I'm being very stubborn (laughs) and insisting that I learn it all myself. And I thank him for uh, dealing with me uh, to that end, but I'm getting there. Um, So if you have feedback, let me know. Also, just email me. Let me know your Titanic stories, your thoughts on the episodes. If I got anything wrong, in your opinion, please let me know. And let me know what episodes you'd like to see in the future. If you want to come on the pod, I'm very open to that. So the email is unsinkablepod at gmail.com. And thank you for ratings, reviews, feedback, whether you're friends or family or someone that I've just connected with on Instagram. It's amazing to be in this conversation and to see this thing of mine out into the world. Uh, I'm just almost near tears thinking about it. I thanked my husband. I also, I forgot last week to thank Judith, who did the artwork for the podcast. Everyone has been commenting on how beautiful it is, and it is. And she's an artist. You can buy her work. Her handle on Insta is psychedelic.mold. Please check her out. Next episode in two weeks. I'm going to do something really fun. I'm going to take a look at the food and the drink aboard Titanic. And as part of it, I plan to try to recreate a couple of dishes and a couple of cocktails in my own kitchen. Maybe I'll have one of the cocktails before I record to make it a little more interesting. Uh, Looking forward to that. I think that's going to be great. So please join me for that. Also thinking about in the middle of the, in the week that's between the bigger episodes, I'm contemplating doing small little tidbits of episodes, maybe about stories where there's just not enough info for a longer one. So, you know, give me feedback about that too, if it's something that you're interested in. All right. See you next time.